1: Go to eufy.com, that's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to health care. That's why United HealthCare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now my next guest is one of the great writers of our time in the English language. He is, of course, celebrated at home but also abroad and his most famous work might be Brooklyn, a novel which was made into a film starring Saoirse Ronan, but not necessarily his best book. Everything he publishes I have to read as soon as I can, and I'm not alone. Many people are like that. And Colum has just published a book of essays. It's called A Guest at the Feast. It's by Viking, and it is quite superb. I haven't been able to put it down since I got it last week. Colm is also the Laureate for Irish Fiction, appointment made by the Arts Council for the next two or three years and he joins me now. Colin, thank you very much for joining us. I was fascinated by the breadth and depth of the book, and I I want to talk to you particularly about Wexford at this point, and more importantly about Ennis Gorty. You consider yourself to be not a Wexford writer, I understand, but an Ennis Gorty writer. What's significant about the difference between Wexford and Enniscorti. In the book, you do describe Wexford as exotic, which I'd never thought of before.
2: Oh, well, I'm talking about being a child, being young and being in Enniscorti and Wexford Town, if you went lucky enough to get an excursion to Wexford Town on a Saturday. Yes. That, um, the, the long main street was really exotic in the sense that it was so filled with people who you didn't know. Whereas in Enniscorthy, you'd always see people you knew. And so filled with different shops. And then you could do another tour where you could walk along the Keys, which Enniscorthy didn't have. And you could look at all the boats and the seagulls. And and so the whole life of Wexford, it also had a Woolworths, which Enniscorthy didn't have. And the Woolworths had a Perspex box with a very, very cold orange juice of some sort. I don't know if it was orange juice, but it looked like orange juice. And it had a plastic orange floating on the top. Of course, I thought it was absolutely marvellous, but also w- Woolworths, you could walk around Woolworths without anyone stopping you, you know, or asking yes. you what you wanted. Yes. Now, that was a marvellous thing, because in every other shop you went into, someone would look at you and say, well, what do you want?
0: Yes, exactly. And, uh,
2: but in Woolworths, this this was a great gift. You could just go to one group of things and look at them and then go over there and look at something else. And um, it's really sad for me that things like <laughs> Woolworths has disappeared. That You can't just wander around shops like that in the same way.
0: now. There is in the book the title essay, A Guest at the Feast. And it does focus on your childhood, on Wexford, of course, and in particular on your late mother. And there's a line in it that's wonderful. You describe her, she did, as James Merrill said about Elizabeth Bishop, a lifelong impersonation of being an ordinary woman. But You go on to say she was discovering writers like Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, Philip Larkin, or S. Thomas. She could recite Shakespeare. And for long periods when books were banned here, she would manage to get those books if she could. And she had good tastes, which you write about with real affection and love.
2: Yeah, I think if you're writing, there is a thing called the ordinary reader. Yes. And, but the ordinary reader is never ordinary in the sense yes. that someone in Ireland who goes to the library and takes out books and works out what they like and don't like, not, not on the basis of any theory or any set of principles that anyone else has established, but just on their own response to the book. And I think that's something people still do. And if yes. you call that ordinary, it's good because um, it's not as though they, they, they have studied literature and it's not as though they're following some critic in some newspaper. It is that they're simply engaged with the book themselves. And my mother was like that. And it was funny what she liked and didn't like. I always felt, you know, that she didn't really like what I did. And that sometimes her way of telling me this was to say that how much she admired Saul Bellow, yes. um, the American novelist, and how smart his books were. She thought they were so smart and modern, up-to-date and she looked at me, and you'd feel that think she thinks she said that my books were a bit slow and melancholy. She didn't like books to be slow.
0: She didn't like Joyce either.
2: No, she could no, she had no interest in Ulysses, but she loved um, Wallace Stevens. I mean, I mean, she could find something just in an a, a poem in an anthology. Then from the anthology, she'd go to the library, then she'd get something else in the library, and so that's how her reading was done. And, and I think it's important for us now in a time when people are so increasingly specialized and, you know, when people only read a certain thing or follow books according to a certain set of principles to to actually honor or at least describe what someone who discovers books for themselves.
0: Yes. And the person who first appears to have acquainted your brother with books is Sister Catherine when I think she was very young, 14 maybe, and Around that love of books that was cultivated by one teacher, or at least encouraged, she built a private, secret self, as as you describe it. And your father died young, and for the last 30 years of your mother's life, books were created for her, a world which she inhabited. Just the sheer magic of your description of that and how important it is for people to immersed themselves in another time, another place by reading.
2: Yeah, I think there was something else she did as well, which is, must seem so old-fashioned and strange now. In Enniscorthy, there was a gramophone society. And once a week on Thursday nights, um, a gramophone, meaning a stereo record player, was, was, was carried into Murphy Flood's Hotel. And a group of people, um, I suppose in a circle almost, of people who liked classical music, at a time when records were very expensive, LPs. Yes. Listened to someone's choice. It was someone's choice every week. And you wrote out your choice. And some people, of course, had choices that were very boring. You know, it was big, long, Germanic songs. So there was a, one man in Enniscorthy who, they deplored his choice. It was just, they were, too, they were just too dull. And my mother would put a huge amount of work into her choice. But you'd have to bring your own records then. Yeah. And you know it it seems that seems would seem if you were telling someone young about that now that would seem like the 19th century but but actually it it really went in they continued doing it into the 1980s and uh and they that was their thursday night it was such a beautiful innocent sweet thing to do at a time when lps were still you know beyond the reach of most of, of a lot of people i mean the, just the cost of them
0: Now you've moved from Wexford although i know you have a home there but you, you spend a lot of time in the United States as well as Britain and in, of course in Dublin do you find when you want to write and you need to focus i heard you tell another interviewer that it was easy but do, do you need solitude concentration concentration in particular but solitude as well
2: I think all that's exaggerated. Right. Well, I think what you need more than anything is you need two rooms and you need a room to sleep in, basically in a room to work in. Yes. And all, you know, I think the big enemy of writers really is the kitchen <laughs> cooking, cleaning, all that stuff, domestics, you know, getting cleaner, or to clean the house. No, I know I'm writing a story. I'm not cleaning the house. Yes. And, um, Oh, we have to clean out the fridge. All this stuff is by sell by day. Yeah, leave the fridge like it is. It's cold. Just, you know, like. Um, so th- that's the first thing, really, that all those domestic things, even putting out the rubbish takes so long nowadays with all the different sorts of yeah. rubbish. And I, I'm not suggesting you need to keep the rubbish in the house. It's better maybe eventually to put it outside. But, uh, but, uh, but I'm saying that you need to work. Now. All the impediments to that, like noise. It doesn't matter. Just work. Just get on with it. And you need to start. Now, for a novel, you need to wait until you get the beginning. And once you have the beginning, you need to finish the book. And the only way to finish the book is to finish the book. It's like, why are you not writing now? What are you doing now? I I, I like what you're doing now. Gay Byrne used to say that to his researchers. If If he didn't like one of the researchers, he'd come up behind the researcher and say, what are you doing now? And it's always a terrible question because usually you're doing nothing much. Right. Um, <laughs> I love the question to ask yourself: What are you doing <laughs> now? Uh, um, the 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 main thing is that every day you just stop creating impediments. Oh, I'd write my book if only my false teeth weren't you know hurting me. Yeah. Stop it! Just get on with it, and just also get into a rhythm. And sometimes you need to work slow, and sometimes work fast. But there's no point in making a fetish out of. Oh, I need solitude. I need silence. I need. Oh, you know, I, you know, I, I need to get a new toupee or something. You know, like just, just, just do it. <laughs>
0: right now, I want to talk to you about Pope Francis, or as he was known in Argentina before he became Pope, George Mario Bergoglio. He was in Argentina when you were there at the time of the generals in the mid '80s, and one of the essays in the book is a brilliant evocation of that time. And in particular, it's called the Bergoglio smile. Tell us about
2: it. Um, When he was made Pope, because he really did come out onto the balcony and smile and say, Buona ser Roma or something, everyone thought that he was a sweet, smiling man, (laughs) except those who knew him from Argentina. And uh, what I wanted to investigate really was... um, what happened in Argentina? What happened in Argentina is very young, he was made head of the Jesuits in Argentina. And he, was, he, he ran the Jesuits with an iron fist. Yes. He was considered um, inflexible. He was completely against liberation theology about priests going out and you know, in, in getting involved in unions and strikes and sort of community activity. He was dead against this. I mean, uniquely for a Jesuit in South America, he was against this. And um, he ran a vicious campaign against the Argentine government um, after, the, after the generals, when the Kirchners came into power. He really was the opposition to them. What's interesting is that j- during the time of the disappearances, he stayed silent. He probably stayed silent for very good reasons in that making noise would not have helped. But what's interesting is afterwards, when the, when the trial of the generals was on, when the mothers in the square, you know, whose, whose children had disappeared um, during the dictatorship, when, when they, they emerged as really heroic people, he was not one of them. The mothers didn't like him, didn't trust him, and he himself didn't think that the disappearances really required much investigation. So, so, so in other words, it isn't as though he was some sort of hero in Argentina at any point. Yes. And um, what, what he did was then he was fired as head of the Jesuits. He was considered he'd been too inflexible, that he was no longer needed. He went f- away for two years into the, into the interior of Argentina. He came back and he hitched his wagon, as it were, to the star of a particularly homophobic and, again, right-wing cardinal in Buenos Aires. He became, in a way, his sidekick and made his way up slowly again. I mean, instead of making his way up to the Jesuits, he sidelined the Jesuits and made his way up through really the dioceses, right. and and, um, and eventually he became Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires. But um, there's a um, on YouTube. I think there's a six hour thing on YouTube where in in Spanish you can see him being interviewed about the time of the disappearances, and he's not smiling, and you can see the extraordinary sort of powerful figure that other cardinals must have seen. Yes. Who were um, he had a withering way of turning to look at anyone who asked him a question, no matter how good the question was. And he was um, so that he's um, I mean, he was known in the Vatican for a number of things. One that he I mean, unlike many other people in the Vatican, he, he no one no one thinks that he is homosexual. And that's very unusual. Yes. Um, in that and, world. and
0: you write at length about the Vatican and that element Culture of the Vatican.
2: Yes, and that in that in general, if someone is preaching against homosexuality, uh, you, you know, someone in the, in the Catholic Church against yes. homosexuality, they tend to be the homosexual ones. In other words, it's a way of of compensating <laughs> for yes. that. In other words, if you find there's a liberal cardinal who's really quite liberal on homosexuality, you find actually he's straight. He's 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 heterosexual. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so you know, the, everyone learns to read these codes. That the more noise you make against homosexuality, um, the more likely you are to be hiding something. Um, I I mean, I I have no um, clear evidence about the sexuality, for example, um, of um, um, Pope Benedict. But he said something astonishing for me. He said, and he said it first um, when he was Ratzinger under John Paul II, he said it later when he was Pope, that that. It isn't just that homosexual acts themselves are immoral, that um, but that homosexuality itself is a moral disorder. The thing itself. Now, I understood this to mean that if I, on Saturday night, instead of going out to a day, gay disco, I stayed at home and I watched reruns of Bernadette of Lourdes. That even that, because I'm homosexual, is a moral disorder. Yes. Now, that seems to me to be very close. To the sort of thinking that gave us the essentialism of the Nazi campaign against yes, Jews, homosexuals, and Gypsies—in other words, that you are that since you are homosexual, that is the only thing you are, and we—it's a moral disorder, and we must get rid of you. Now, obviously, um, Benedict wasn't wanting to—he wasn't wanting to kill anybody—but nonetheless, remarks like that in countries such, for example, as Nigeria yes, or of you know, you know, countries in which there's a that, that they, they really increase the sort of hatred. But of course, what's marvelous to watch is somewhere like Ireland, where nobody in the church distanced themselves from, I think, what is a very, very ugly remark. I mean, it isn't a remark. It was, it was a big, you know, it was, it was a major um, piece of church teaching that Benedict issued, that being homosexual itself yes. is a moral disorder. Now, when we have, a, we have a priest in Kerry making this, everyone yes, goes, last Sunday, But I mean, this is not any different from what the Pope himself said and everybody just said nothing.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at Burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at Burrow.com ACAST. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Ufi X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and Masters dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y dot and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree.
2: food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us. Call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
0: Now, Colin, one of your essays fascinated me because it's someone I knew, Francis Stewart. He was a very controversial figure. I met him through... A mutual friend of ours, the late Tony Cronin, and you write a fascinating essay about Francis Stewart, who you met and knew, and like I did, I like I liked him and found him interesting but strange. Um,
2: Francis h- had a problem when it, when when the, I suppose when the war was over.
0: We should I suppose I should explain to listeners yeah. that. In England, they had Lord haw who spoke to the English people during the war from Germany. And Francis Stewart also did some broadcasts. He went to Germany, did some broadcasts, which were transmitted back to Ireland. And there was always a shadow, a long shadow, really, that followed him post-war.
2: Yeah, he was He, he was born in 1899. He, he was, um, as a young man, he married... Um, Maud Ghosn's daughter, Isolt, and he was involved with Yeats, and he was considered a very talented young writer, and he was a friend of Limor Flaherty's, and um, when it came to 1939, he was offered a job at Berlin University. He took the job, he went to Berlin, and he lived in Berlin for the period of the war and he broadcast, really, um, I suppose, for Hitler. But, you know, it it wasn't as though he was the, the... um broadcasts were especially bellicose, but nonetheless, within them, there is a code of anti-Semitism. In other words, when you talk about an international gang of financiers, you yes. talk to Jewish people. I mean, I mean that, that is the code. And uh, there's some other quite sentimental about Ireland, and he was in favor of United Ireland. And when the war was over, obviously, um, he, he made sure that he was arrested not by the English, but by the French.
0: Right. Because he
2: felt the English would really, you know, that 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 he would be um, much more harshly treated. But but anyway, eventually, you know, by say 1950, he's released, and the woman he had met in Germany, who had also worked in the in, in the broadcasting business, Madeline, he married her after after Esel Gunn died. And eventually, in, in the 50s, they came back to Ireland.
0: Now he wrote a book, which Penguin, who published this book, well, Viking, which is a brand of Penguin, which is. The publisher of your book, A Guest at the Feast, he wrote a book called Blacklist Section H, which I read a long time ago and found I found it interesting to read, well written. I'm sure you've read it, have you?
2: Oh, I have. I mean, I had an enormous effect on me when I was 18 or 19. really is setting himself up as some sort of outlaw. And that he's going to Berlin was a way of increasing his outlaw status, that no matter what happened in the world, he would be on the losing side. This is the figure in Blacklist Section H, and, and it looks like an autobiographical portrait because he, he puts in the real names that he's involved with Yates, he's involved with Maud Gown, that he marries her daughter, that he knows Limor Flaherty, that he's involved with horse racing and gambling, uh, and that he goes to Germany. So all those things look as though this is a self-portrait. The problem is that that, that that is a misreading of the book, and it took me a long time to realize that. Right. In the novel, he sets about creating a much more romantic and idealistic version of himself, apolitical, a sort of holy fool, wandering towards you know, the fire uh, out of a sort of interest in excitement and an interest in also outlaw status. But actually, uh, if you look at the evidence from those years, as Brendan Barrington did in an edition of the war, war broadcast that Brendan Barrington edited. It really opened my eyes to the idea that Stuart was a much more political figure, m- much harder figure than the soft, saintly figure who appeared around Dublin. Yes. We met, for example, in the 80s and 90s. Francis was so saintly and almost holy. And he would come into a room, and he was—he was astonishing looking. He was tall. He had grey hair. This enormous bulbous nose, but these eyes that seemed to—you know—to take you in softly. He loved cats. He loved rabbits, and um, he um, spoke very, very softly in this sort of soft, almost foreign accent. Yes. Realized um, that a lot of this was a sort of disguise for what had actually happened. I mean, what would you do if you—if you'd come out of Germany? and realized what the rest of the world now thought of you uh, after the full news of the Holocaust appeared, full, the full hatred for Germany and for Nazis that came after the war and realizing that he had to do something. So right. my, my essay is a way of trying to see, A, how, you know, how, how, much he, how hard he tried to create a sort of aura around himself that was, say, apolitical, that was holy almost, as opposed to being uh, thoughtful.
0: Yeah, and the essay you write is called Issues of Truth and Invention. I just want to ask you about two of the essays in one question. One is, it's called A Brush with the Law. It's when McGill, yourself, and Vincent Brown wanted to publish a very important piece about a, a woman who died, a prostitute who died in circumstances. And the other is about David Norris and his very long and courageous battles with the law all the way up to the Supreme Court. Perhaps if you tell me about David Norris first and and the attitudes of these people to yeah. gay or homosexual men as it was then and there's a wonderful description that's very funny that you about a man masturbating on his own and then no problem, no breach of law. Man masturbating with another man who's masturbating is a breach of the law. And of course, it doesn't matter if it's lesbians doing anything. Um,
2: this was Neil McCarthy in the Supreme Court. Um, this was his judgment saying, you know, like if a man masturbates with another man, that's illegal. But if a man masturbates a woman, it's not. If a man masturbates alone, like, you know, it's, this, this really makes no sense. The, the, the general business of um, uh, judges went nuts when the subject of homosexuality came before them. Um, From the Chief Justice down, they said things that not only in retrospect seemed crazy, but at the time seemed crazy. And um, so that David Norris lost his case in the Supreme Court 3-2, and the Chief Justice brought in um, evidence into his judgment that had not been tested in the court, and yes. I'm not the only one who thinks this is outrageous. Mr. Justice Henshey, who was also in the Supreme Court, pointed out this and said, "You like you can't do this in the Supreme Court. You can't just decide to throw in a whole lot of stuff that hasn't been tested in the court." But in in any case, even someone like Brian Walsh, who was a liberal judge in many ways, he had some really nuts things. To say. I mean, the, all, see, they all thought that homosexuality was contagious, yeah. and that and that it, you know, if you let a homosexual. Be be live a legal life. Suddenly, his neighbor will become homosexual. The next neighbor will become. Once you get a taste for this homosexuality thing, you <laughs> never look back. And anyone who's homosexual knows well. I, I mean, if, if only this were true, if we be great, because then everybody would be homosexual, and we'd all have a wonderful time. But. It it, it isn't true. All you've got to do is find out, ask somebody, ask an expert, like just ask anyone on the street, really, they'll tell you. But these judges, you realize, they they lived in a strange world that maybe many middle-aged men of their generation lived in which the one thing they lived in fear of was a homosexual coming anywhere near them. And um, (laughs) so, you know, for, for me, it was a really strange business having to hang out with these people because personally, I, I enjoyed the company of the Chief Justice as I did the company of, um, of Mr. Justice Brian Walsh. Um, they, 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 were, they were very, um, in a way, you know, hospitable, interesting men. But this was, the, this was, the, this was really, they were blind on this yeah. whole matter. But this whole matter was, of course, really important
0: at the time. Yes, and I'm going to let you go now just by saying once again, what a wonderful, wonderful book of essays this is. And it's perfect. For everybody, you can read them all in one go. You can pick them up when you want to read them, particularly over a holiday period. I just want to ask you one final question. In some ways, the Ireland you describe of the past, that particular case involving David Norris, your own mother's sort of loneliness after your father died, the fact that people had to suppress who they really were and what they really believed. Have you noticed a change? Is this a different and now better place? Or is that just too simplistic a question to answer in in three minutes?
2: I think in certain areas, the change has been complete. And I think, for example, the... um, the homosexual thing—that the chances of judges making stupid remarks like that are zero now. So that's that's yes. great. I mean, thank God that judges have shut up on the whole matter of of, of homosexuality because they knew nothing about it in the first place. <laughs> and you know, I, I think obviously we've won—we've won many freedoms. Um I mean, if you think about it, it's just I just was—it was, it was Gareth Fitzgerald's government that that got rid of corporal punishment in schools. Yes. I mean, if you think about. That was an enormous, was a milestone moment. But there, there, so there are many, many moments like that that have made the country different. And I think being young now in Ireland is a um, really, I think we must stop trying to tell young people what it was like before they were born. It yes. must be really tired listening to us.
0: Okay, Colin, we're very grateful to you for joining us on the stand. I strongly recommend the book. It's called The Guest at the Feast. The essays are luscious. Brilliantly written and at times very funny. Book was published by Viking, which is a penguin imprint. We're grateful to the column, of course, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
1: <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's EUFY.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all in one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?